Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology. Hi, my name is Amy Agresti, and I'm thrilled to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called Can a Writer Be Too Emotional? Asking for a Friend. And what I really don't have time for is writing, sure, but also figuring out how to use my phone properly. This is the first voice memo I've ever made. How am I doing? Anyway, read this anthology. It's amazing. John Freeman is the author of the Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story. He's the editor of Freeman's, a literary annual of new writing, and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf. His books include How to Read a Novelist and Dictionary of the Undoing, as well as Tales of the Two Americas, an anthology about income inequality in America, and Tales of Two Planets, an anthology of new writing about inequality and the climate crisis globally. He is also the author of two poetry collections, Maps and The Park. His work is translated into more than 20 languages and has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and The New York Times. The former editor of Granta, he teaches writing at New York University. 
Welcome, John. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's so great to be here. (laughs) Well, we have so much to discuss your literary career. I'm like so excited to talk books and everything with you. The Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story is your latest hardcover publication here. And then you have Change coming out soon from Freeman's. How did you decide on which short stories to include in this collection? I know you're like master anthologist. And as like a budding anthologist myself, I'm looking for lots of tips from you. (laughs) So how did you how did you pick? It was actually quite fun. In the beginning, I had a list of stories I thought would go in, but then I decided it would be far better and more interesting to just go and read what was out there. And so I spent a year, a year and a half reading a couple thousand stories from all the best Americans from 1970, you know, upwards to the O'Henry collections, to everything that had been shortlisted for a prize, to stories people recommended, the stories by noted short story writers. And it was it was just a short short story feast for, you know, almost two years. And that was quite interesting because people I had thought I was in love with sometimes paled in comparison to new discoveries. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like in today's sort of market, the short story collections are often not given as much attention or they say they don't sell as well or they're not as commercial or blah, 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 not that it matters. But then when we think about literature over time, I mean, the short stories, that's like what people read in school. Like those are what have the lasting legacy. So I don't know, maybe we're getting something wrong right now. Well, yeah, we are taught to read by reading short stories. And I think for some that has a lingering medicinal aftertaste (laughs) and they sort of avoid it. But when you catch a good story early, you know, whether it's, I don't know, Flannery O'Connor or Jack London or James Baldwin, you never forget it, you know? And my hope was to make a book full of stories that made the reader, even if they weren't familiar with the writer or the story, that would recapture that feeling, you know, that that sort of magic, that deeply memorable experience that a, a short story can can give you. And it was it was a high bar, but when a story meets it, it's just electric. Yes. I love that you have like Karen Russell and Lauren Groff and all these contemporary authors sort of mixed in with like Grace Paley and Susan Sontag. And I mean, they must have been so excited to be <laughs> included, right? I mean, this is such an to be in your canon of short stories, as it were. I mean, that's pretty awesome. I don't know. I mean, I I've I'm blown away consistently by both of those writers' stories you just mentioned, Karen Russell and Lauren Groff. And they came out early, very early. You know, if you read Lauren Groff's first collection, she has this long love story. I think it's it's, it's based on Torless and Cressida, but it's sort of set in the early 20th century. And I almost included that story because it was just such a beautiful love story. Then I thought, God, I can't include a story from the very first year she was publishing and, you know, the, Florida is full of, of fantastic stories. There was three in that book I could have included. And I find that there are certain writers, Russell is another one, where her imagination is just, it's its own planet, its own universe. And she's so good at the short story, I could have chosen a few by her. And the same was true of Raymond Carver. You know, he, he was taught a lot, and I think he created a lot of imitators. But you go back to Raymond Carver's stories, wow, I mean... They just feel completely skinless. You know, they're these alive things. You know, they don't feel old at all. And the same is true of Tony K. Bambara. You know, the first story that kicks off the book, the lesson, is something I think is taught very frequently in schools, but 
she was one of those writers where the appreciation of her wasn't transcending the early educational uses of her work. And I hope this book will be taught in schools, but I hope it will just be enjoyed by people who want a good story. And I really wanted to kick off with her because I think she's one of the maestros of the 20th century short story. I mean, just absolutely pitch perfect control over voice and irony. And and in this story, these children on a school trip into Manhattan to, to go to but I think it's F.A.O. Schwartz, who are, you know, the school teacher thinks she's teaching them about the value of dutiful accumulation of wealth. And, and instead, she's she's teaching them about shame and poverty. And the kids already know that lesson. And so the, yeah. the, the story has so many circles within it, so many, so many layers. And she does all this in a couple thousand words. And she does it again and again in her career as a short story writer. And so part of this book is celebrating people who really dedicated their career to writing stories, you know, and Groff and Paley have, are, and Bambara among them. I feel like, did you have Jhumpa Lahiri? Oh yeah, you did have Jhumpa Lahiri. I was going to say, she's like the quintessential like short story writer in my mind where you jump right into a story and you know, like you never forget the characters and it just like sears into your brain. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I'm glad you included her. Yeah, she's a beautiful that. writer. And you're right, the, the stories by her just the characters feel like their their world and their their being exists beyond the story. And to me, that's what seems like a hallmark of a great character in a story is this feeling that you might finish the story and and they have a whole other existence <laughs> beyond the story, you know, whereas with a novel you finish, unless there's a strong sense of a sequel, you think, okay, that's their world, you know. I've seen it, you know, especially a bigger novel when it, it's roomy and has languors and, you know, those the enchanting pleasures of, of interior life. But with a short story, you, you feel like you're only get a slice of someone's very deep life. Yeah. Left wanting more, kind of like a movie trailer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Where's the rest of it? Will you be publishing short stories at your, your new imprint? I don't know. So Lee Newman, who I co-founded Zippy Books with, has her own collection of short stories coming out in April. She's a fabulous and she, short story uh, writer. Yeah, she's amazing. So we have talked about that, but we haven't made we haven't ruled anything out. We have a memoir and essays coming out. So I feel like that's kind of the flip side, right? Short stories to collection of essays. So yeah, we're not ruling anything out at this point, but we don't have we haven't acquired one yet. But yeah, the- I know she's a she always talks about her passion for short stories. So I wouldn't be surprised. It is, I mean, sadly, the exception uh, to the exception <laughs> that sells in the short story form. I mean, several people in this book, Jumbo Lahiri, Juno Diaz, mm-hmm. some degree Carver over time, Lauren Groff. You know, th- there are people that that really sell in serious numbers as, a, as short story writers. But that's, it's rare. And I, I don't know, I think it's in America, sometimes it feels a little bit like selling air because <laughs> short stories are everywhere. They're in magazines. Sometimes they are even newspapers. You're taught them. You know, they're on podcasts. You can download them depending on how long your subway <laughs> trip is. It's sort of a unit of pleasure that that doesn't necessarily need a book or if right. not a book, then like a single book by a single author. And for that reason, I sometimes wonder if people's attitude towards it is, you know, more akin to how people treat albums and music right now. They just sort of pick one song from iTunes and download it versus, you know, get the whole album. True. 
Although I think the great thing about anthologies and short story collections and essay collections is that no matter how tired you are, you can just read one and feel like you've accomplished something. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like I got, I did the beginning, middle and end of this thing. And that's what I did today. And now I have something good that I can, you know, cross off the list. So I I think for today's. Don't you love like um, flash fiction for that? I mean, there's a couple of stories in here that are very, very short. George Saunders and Alice Walker's stories are two, 300 words. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was, I would felt accomplished very early in the night <laughs> with those. <laughs> That's why I've actually found with all this reading, like I've, I'm, I'm also sort of newly in love with poetry, which I, again, was sort of in the realm of school for me for a while. Like, and now because I'm like, oh, poetry, I can read, I can read that faster. I'm sort of back into enjoying that. And it has the same thing. It's like this immediacy and like this, it's a new, it's a different art form. I'm sounding ridiculous, but anyway, I, I have this like newfound appreciation for sort of coming back around from my time as like fiction, memoir, thriller, all that stuff. So I shouldn't say thriller. I don't really like thrillers. But, well, I shouldn't say that either. You're going to hear some dogs in the background. <laughs> oh, well, as my, the... my dog may jump up and join the fray. <laughs> no worries. I feel like probably one out of 10 podcasts, there is a dog barking. So that's fine. <laughs> so John, how did you get to here? Like, how did you become the executive editor of Knopf and like, right, you know, all the work that you've done, like, where did you know this is like, what did you want to do when you started out? Like, did you always want to be a writer or were you like, how did you, what happened with, from college to here, the short version? Yeah. If you had told me when I was 21 and graduating from university that (laughs) in 25 years, I would be an editor at Knopf. I think I would have I would have fallen over in happiness uh, because I knew I wanted to be involved in books, but I didn't know how, you know, and I went to a very small Quaker college, Swarthmore, that didn't have a pipeline. You know, we had we had Jonathan Franzen, you know, who was when I was graduating, you know, still wandering the heath of discovering, you know, what kind of novelist he was is long before corrections. And there weren't a lot of people in publishing and magazines, but I got a job because Random House was recruiting from universities directly then. And I got hired into a program at Bantam Doubleday Dell in 1996 and moved to New York and got a job as an assistant to the late Marjorie Brayman, who was a mass market editor. I have so I was so green, the phone rang. She was standing over me and I just picked it up and said, it's for you. <laughs> and the guy next to me who's still in publishing, he's an agent now, he just went, he took me aside. We're going to have to teach you a few things. I didn't know what it meant to be an assistant. I just knew that I love books and I love reading and probably wanted to write, but I didn't, I didn't know any which way to go about it. So I, I spent two years as an assistant in a variety of jobs of which I was, I quit one, was fired from one. And the third, I was sort of, I just kind of phased out because partly it just was such a different time. You know, it was the heyday of the author tour, gigantic advances. I worked, my third job was at Hyperion <laughs> and they were doing books by stand-up comedians. I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I left and had a kind of couple years. I worked at an investment bank. I did. No way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I made newsletters for HMOs, you know, that they would send out to like how to use your primary care physician. And around this, in the middle of this period, I, I sent some college era newspaper clips to Publishers Weekly and they let me review a book. And I used that 
clip to send to the Boston Phoenix, which is a now defunct alternative weekly. And I started reviewing books very slowly, but I got lucky in that my first assignment was for Birds of America by Laurie Moore. And my second assignment was The Hours by Michael Cunningham. Oh my God. My third assignment was For the Relief of Unbearable Urges by Nathan Englander. I thought, wow. Oh my God, reviewing is great. You just get to read really fantastic books and try to make sense of them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And eventually I started to get books I, I was less fond of, but I, it was a great time. 1999, I found, and putting together this anthology, I could have, I could have chosen six or seven stories from 99 because Jump Lahiri was in full flow. That then Nathan Englander, Juno Diaz, Laurie Moore was writing great stories in that period. I mean, it was just, there was a whole new kind of short story that was being written. There was a pleasure in it and the, the, the humor was less tart and, and kind of clubby, you know, and there were also just a, a number of new voices that were coming to the fore that were people from communities that did not see themselves at the center of America. You know, Nathan Englander grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community in Long Island. And a lot of his stories feel like babble or singer stories, at least the early ones. So anyway, I, I reviewed books for a while, eventually lost a day job and just reviewed full time for almost 10 years. And then I got a job in New York and I did edited a guide to children's books and abridged children's versions of Tarzan. It'd be a, God, it was just, a, I had a really, I had about 30 jobs, it felt like, until I finally ended up with a full time job, which was not until I really got hired to work at Granta. You know, I'd been reviewing books for about 12 years and interviewing people. And I went to the party for the 2003 Best of Young American Novelist list. I think that was about the year. Yeah. No, sorry. It was 2007. And I met the owners and they looked for an editor and I applied, didn't get the job. But then a year later, they hired me to come back and edit. And that started a five-year relationship with the magazine, eventually became editor. And then my relationship to reading became very different because it was publishing for someone review as a reviewer you're sort of in cahoots with the the reader but you're you're not providing the text you're saying 
ah, I'd take a pass on this one, or, you know, this is really, really great. You should read it. Or you may not read this, but you should really know about it. It's exceptional. And, you know, I, it's, that sounds very consumer oriented, but I reviewed mostly for newspapers. And so I felt like as much as I wanted to write art in a review, when you have 700 words and you're talking to someone who you don't have a lot of shared assumptions about. So one of them I felt like had to be, should you read this? You know, should you buy it? Should you spend $25 on it? And I love that. But as a publisher, it's, you've got subscribers and you're trying to provide them with a consistent level of enjoyment, but with different things. And I, I, that's what I loved about working at Granta was that the people that subscribed to it and read it, they wanted to be excited and challenged. And one of the reasons why it sort of needed a new, new editor at the time I was coming in was it has started to provide some of the same things over and over, which is what happens with success. You know, people, it becomes easy to do what you've done before as a publication. So that's, that's sort of how I ended up with all that work. And, you know, between working at Granta and now is, I guess almost another eight years. And I eventually quit that job because I felt like it was deforming personally. <laughs> you can't be the <laughs> editor of a big literary magazine without people, you know, treating you like an editor of a big literary magazine. And I don't know, I wanted to write books and do other things too. And so I, I quit the job and came back to New York. And first thing I noticed was the gap between the rich and the poor. And so I commissioned an anthology about inequality in New York City, which turned into three, one about the America at large, and then one about the the planet and the, the gap between, you know, not just North and South, but countries which are late to some of the effects of the climate crisis and those which have been paying early. And I, in the course of making that, I also helped start up LitHub and worked there for about five years and put about, I don't know, 1,500 stories into, into there. And so I I was doing a lot of editing and I also started my own journal, Freeman's, which is going into its eighth edition this fall with change. And I love finding new things and hearing about new writers and then experiencing reality through their work in a new way. It feels like a way to make life feel endless when it's it's very much, un, it's very, very, end. I wanted to say end full. It very much has an end. <laughs> and yes. so I, I, in the course of putting those together, some of the pieces turned into books. Valeria Luiselli wrote an essay about volunteering to interpret for Spanish-speaking minors who had come undocumented into the U.S. and their court dates to verify that they were eligible for asylum. And that turned into a really powerful book called Tell Me How It Ends, which is a book-length essay using this as its spine, the questionnaire that these minors are faced with, which is in English, in which they need an interpreters like her for. And she was showing how the questions create a, a distorted reality. And that reality is then used to talk about and think about migration. And it was just such a powerful piece. And I knew from the second that she turned it in at that length, that it was a book. And I, over the course of editing Freeman's, I just thought this would be really quite a bit fun to, to, to work with authors beyond their pieces. And so I, I did a little bit of that at Grove. Jaime Cortez has a short story collection out called Gordo, which I ran two of in, in the journal. And Aminata Forna has an essay collection that also came out this year that I, I edited for Grove. But at a certain point, I, I had sort of burnt out of the internet. So I quit my job at LitHub, which seems to be a five-year plan for me. And <laughs> yeah. as a result, I was going to, as you can tell from the background noise, walk dogs. <laughs> I, was, I had no other plans besides dog walking. And then the, the very next day, Reagan Arthur emailed me and said, hey, I want to talk to you about something. I, 
I don't know what I thought, but when I talked, when I, when I called her, I was really surprised. And since then, it's been just an absolute treat. You know, it's, it's been really fun, you know, editing books by Sandra Cisneros and Dave Eggers, but Nadifa Muhammad as well. And there's some, some debut writers. It's just, I feel like I've found a, a job and a group of people that is glorious to, to work with. Yeah. So I'm sorry, that's a little long, but it's, it's a random. No, I found that so fascinating because as you're going through it, it, careers like often don't make any sense. Like the totally linear career, especially in this world, because there is no clear path, right? So everybody has to do all sorts of different things to getting to where they are in, in the literary world, if you will. So no, I found it so fascinating. And actually it's so funny because I feel like, I had there are a lot of like parallels with the with this little tiny ecosystem that I'm building here a little bit, right? So Moms don't have time to write is now our personal essay site, and I've now for Zibby Books, like a couple of those authors are writing books for us, and it's the same thing. I just want to hear more, and that's how I started doing anthologies is from the podcast when I just like I wanted to hear more from authors. So it's the same. It comes from the same place, right? Just interest, curiosity leads to commissioning <laughs> and hearing more that way. It's great having that opportunity too, because many people in the field that we're in are good storytellers in person, you know, and listening to people talk and tell stories, you sometimes hear a bigger story. And that's always been a commissioning angle for me. I don't sit down hoping to to, to do that. I don't, I'm not sitting there with a, like a little clicker saying, ah, ha, here it is. Here's the gold. But Occasionally people just tell stories and you think that you should write that as an essay. And it's very fun to be able to say, not, not just you should write that as an essay, but I would like to publish that as an essay if you can write that. Yeah, it's trying, so cool. You know, and that's-, that's And now, now it's like, you should write a book. And I'm like, this is so awesome. Now it's going to be a book. <laughs> it's like magic. I mean, for any book lovers, it's this is this is magic. It's like, you know, it's one thing to discover a book that means a lot, but it's another to- just hear something and think, wow, this is, if you could get all this on the page, this is going to like really help other people. And here it's just like floating around. So now you just have to grab it like this balloon kind of like, you know, which is like tie it to something. Collaboration is one of the greatest joys of working in publishing. You know, as you know, you're putting together a book, there's just 50 people involved from the copy editors to the fact checkers to the jacket designers to the photographer for the author to the obviously the author him or her themselves you know is 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 the center of it and it's not quite the case with every other art you know maybe a, a painter has an assistant or and they have a gallerist and there's people who help hang the paintings and ship them and etc but it's not quite as collaborative as like say movies but it i love that participating in that you know and I don't, I don't know that I could write myself without this form of collaboration being a big part of my life as an editor, as an anthologist. And I feel a tiny bit because I've written nonfiction books and poetry. I hope I will not ask an author to do something I wouldn't ask myself to do, you know? And I, I think that's a key part of, you know, just preserving spaces of care within an industry, which is very competitive. It's quite stressful, you know? selling a book is very difficult and it's overjoying when it can happen. And then, then begins the process of trying to make it and get it out there and get people to know about it. And, and I, I think being part of that can be very rewarding, especially if you're working with people 
who have a similar attitude of of hope, fullness. You know, you kind of, the the publishing jokes are often cynical and dark, but all the great publishers I've known, even if they dress all in black, they're, <laughs> they're secretly hopeful because you can't you can't convince an audience with cynicism and. Any teacher, any good teacher knows this too. You can't go into a classroom, although it's a trope in films, you can't go into a classroom and win the students over with your stylized cynicism. You know, you have to, it doesn't mean you have to be pie in the sky hopeful. It doesn't mean that you have to overlook terrible things or, or fractured issues of say what it means to be an American in a country that is like, like the country we're in now that we've been in for centuries. And yet you still have to, I think, try to find points of, if not hope, then like some kind of light, you know, some kind of pleasure is a big thing. I think, you know, the idea of a book is, is an instrument of education and light and argument, but it's also primarily, hopefully pleasure. It should be pleasurable to read, even if it's arguing with you, it should be a pleasure to read it. It should be stimulating. And, you know, that's a really fun task to be involved in is providing pleasure for others in, in that high-minded way. And it doesn't have to be literary, but it has to reach the person. Yes. I love how you said that. Totally agree. 100%. It's hard for stories though, isn't it? Because I one of the things I thought about is when I was putting together that anthology is I, I wanted there to be different forms of pleasure, you know, scare, scary stories, stories that were really, really dark and unusual. No, I was like, Stephen King, I can't, I can't. I'm going to be up all night. I'm like, I got to fast forward through this one. Yeah, that, I, I had a longer story by him called The Man in the Black Suit, which is fantastic. The New Yorker ran it in the late 90s and it, and it won an O'Henry Prize, I think. And it's about this kid who sees the devil on down by a river. And he, he like, of course, runs home. Like, oh my God, I saw the devil. And this, his dad comes back out and you would think that the devil won't appear, but I think he does. And it's just, it's it's so scary. And the story that I ended up running called The Dune is similarly spooky, but it has a, it has a different cast to it. it. It reminds me more, this will date me, but there used to be a series on television called Amazing Stories that mm-hmm. I think Steven Spielberg maybe produced. And it was, they're kind of stories about just weird things that happen, you know, like someone on a plane and they're, they see someone on the wing of the plane and every time they point to the person on the wing of the plane, the person next to them turns to look and the person isn't out there. It's like, there's a person on the plane. That's the whole show. <laughs> and this, this, the Dune, I feel like is like one of those stories. And King is, he is so protean as a short story writer. He's got billions of examples of this, you know, where something uncanny happens and then the story starts this little engine of escalation. Like, like what, what happens when no one sees it? What happens when no one else sees it? You know, he, my my other favorite story of his is that story, Quitter's Inc., where he, this guy is in an airport bar and the guy sitting next to him has just quitted smoke, has just quit smoking. And he says, hey, try this. It will really work. And he phones the number, goes into Midtown. And it's this bland office. And they have this questionnaire. He fills it out, does the whole thing. And the, the person there says, you know, you have to stick by this or else. And doesn't really specify what's going to happen. I forget what happens, but basically the guy instantly, you know, sneaks a cigarette and the next day someone comes by and like cuts off his hand or, or they do something really terrible and violent and it just sort of escalates from there. And that, 
But it, that was somehow, just, it was just a little bit too brutal. I was like watching the Golden Girls. I'm not like, I cannot take any stress in my TV watching. Like Golden Girls, Funky Brewster, I'm good. It was like, you know. Funky <laughs> Brewster, we must be exactly the same age. I watched that. I'm 45. I'm 46. Yeah. So. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. I have Soleil Moonfry. I think I maybe, I think I had a Funky Brewster poster. I told I wanted to be her. I thought she was like the be all end all. Yeah, yeah. I remember looking at Swarthmore, by the way, because I got completely lost. My mother took my two friends from high school and me to look at colleges. And I remember, you know, we had like the AAA triptychs. Do you remember what those were when they were like, anyway, she got us like completely lost in a snowstorm looking for Swarthmore and kept like calling and screaming at the admissions office. And <laughs> it was so embarrassing, her like complete breakdown that I was like, okay, I can't apply here. Like, that's it. I, I cannot apply to the school. <laughs> We've ruined our like reputation already. A sign from the gods that maybe this this isn't meant for you. <laughs> yeah, no. I ended up applying to Penn. Not that I went there either. Where, anyway, where did it doesn't you end matter. Up? I I went to Yale. And did were you happy there? I was. Yeah, I loved it. I really loved it. To be honest, I wanted to go to Brown, but I was waitlisted there, so I went to Yale. <laughs> and is it? They have a very storied English department, don't they? Or they did in the nineties. They did. And I thought I wanted to be an English major because I had started writing for Seventeen Magazine. I am like the total, I'm like embarrassed talking to you. You're so like high-minded literary and I'm so like- Hey, no, I was, I, was a, I was at a bank working on spreadsheets, calculating the EBITDA of, you know, of, of entertainment stocks. So- <laughs> Yeah. I, I went to business school. I learned how to do EBITDA analysis. Not that I've used it once, you know, but actually I did use it once and I completely messed up my whole like business model. So I decided I should not go back to doing that. Yeah. No, anyway, I thought I wanted to be an English major, but you had to take so many, uh, the, the prerequisites and all the classes. I'm like, I cannot, I can't, I don't want to take any of these classes. Like I took a prose writing class, which I loved. I wish I could remember my teacher, but then I ended up majoring in psychology because I wanted to take every single one of those classes. Mm -hmm. I found them so fascinating. So that's what I ended up doing. I'm sure you were an English major. I was, but I also majored in political science and I had a sort of side thing on public policy, but I failed statistics. So I ended up just English and political science. I actually did okay in statistics, crazy enough. Well, I mean, you should, you'll be a good publisher because actually we calculate EBITDA. <laughs> we do on our P&Ls. It's like, what is the EBITDA of this book? Which is yes, I've been looking at p and I have been looking at P&Ls again and I'm like, huh, this is what I'm saying. How like, it's so crazy how every experience ends up making this work this orbit. Right? from my time, like filing author contracts in my internship at Vanity Fair, where I'm like, wait, how do I become the author? I don't want to be filing the contracts. I found that fascinating. I worked in subrights at Farrar Strauss and I would file the contracts and I, yeah. and their contracts were, I mean, it was like Jack Kerouac for Big Sur. You know, and- yeah, no, these were like big deal contracts. I was like, oh my God. Um, meanwhile, I'm totally late for my next podcast here. So I better go. Thank you for this. This you. was so fun. Yeah. You too. We should do this more often or continue. I'm sorry about so the, the interruptus doggus. You know, it's just no worries. <laughs> they, no worries. They're keeping us all safe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope you have the best of luck with your list. It's It sounds like a really fun project and Thank you. I'm excited. Actually, Jenny Jackson, who I adore, she's the one who introduced me to Anne Massetti, who's now our consulting publisher. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited to read Jenny's first novel, which should be coming around pretty soon, I would think. Oh my gosh. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'll have to have her on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure. And, you know, if I can ever 
introduce you to anyone else or talk to you about EBITDA. (laughs) Thank you. You'll be my first call when I'm struggling in Excel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care, Zibi. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.